Well, good morning, church family. It is uh, just a joy to hear a little bit about Josiah's story about growing up in the church and how, you know, the Lord has used the church in his life to develop him. And I loved watching this morning another one of our students, Ava Range, leading us in worship. You know, the baton is just constantly being passed. You might not know this right now, but we have one of our uh, young guys, Jason Jr., who's running the, the live stream feed with uh, James uh, t- this morning. Bella Hayward, of course, grew up in our youth group. These, these are just great things to see. This is a, a sign of health and vitality in a local church when you see people being raised and carrying that baton and passing it forward. So we're going to continue along in this journey. I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy. And uh, you can put your finger there in 2 Timothy, and uh, we will pick up with that scripture. Now, as we're entering once again into this very personal letter between Paul and Timothy, I want you to think about an influential figure in your life who helped you along in your journey to walk with Christ. They could have been a grandparent figure, a parental figure, a mentor. Someone who you really looked to and you said, you know, I know that if I pick up the phone right now, they're going to pick up and they're going to respond to me. Someone that you knew who always believed the best in you. Even if you accidentally put your foot in your mouth, they didn't just jump to conclusions or write you off. Someone who just truly wanted God's best for you and you knew that they were praying for you regularly. You think about this person, and it's hard to imagine life without their presence. Now, maybe you're sitting here today, and as you're thinking of this person, you've experienced the loss of their presence. I remember when I was in my college years, I I went during college, and I lived with my grandparents. And I've got to tell you, my grandma Wheeler was just a, a figure, a pillar in the life of our family. She was that individual who was committed to Jesus. She was so encouraging to family members, and she was fiercely protective of family members. That's why when her life began to decline, it caught us off guard so strongly. I remember it began subtly. Uh, she was the type of individual who was never at a loss for words, and then she started muddling her words. And if there ever was a word to describe her, the word would have been immaculate. And yet, slowly but surely, she began to just lose a sense of those daily hygiene routines. In fact, it became so striking to us how quick and rapid this decline was when we first became aware that dementia was setting in to the time of her death, it was only six months. She had forgotten how to eat, and she went home to be with the Lord. Now, I mean, that, the loss of that presence hit us all differently but equally. 
You, you know what that person is like in your life. And in fact, as you think about them, a lot of their presence represented to you what was right and what was valuable and the things that really we should believe in and inspire to you. They were, they were so strong and influential that there were times, I don't know about you, but there were times when I thought about doing the wrong thing and then I thought about Grandma Wheeler. I said, I don't want to let her down. I'm going to do what's right right now. But the loss of that presence, it it can really create instability, can't it? I think of Paul penning this letter to Timothy, and I wonder if a lot of what he's writing is in anticipation of the shockwave that his death is going to create in Timothy's life, if there's going to be a faith crisis And as Paul writes this, he's basically saying to Timothy, look, if you're going to carry this baton, there's two crucial things that you need to take hold of right now in your life. And really, church, as we're reading this letter over Timothy's shoulder, those two crucial things apply to us too. The first thing that Paul will bring to Timothy's attention is crucial perspective. And I think you'll see that with me in verse 8. Let's read that. Paul says to Timothy, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, we're going to be making our way through verses 8 through 18, and I want you to notice that there are four verbs or imperatives that Paul uses to frame these two crucial things. So the first two imperatives go together, and then the second two imperatives go together. The first two are in verse 8, do not be ashamed and share in the suffering. And then the next two are verses 13 and 14, follow the pattern of sound words and guard the good deposit. Now here's a Bible study tool. When you look at a passage, follow the main verbs. The verbs help you to see the main ideas. So those first two main verbs go together and they talk about a change of mind or perspective. Look at it like this. Do not be ashamed, but rather share in the suffering. Suffering. Now perspective really is everything, isn't it? I mean, think about climbing a mountain. If you have the perspective at the beginning that this is going to be a horrible journey, how do you think that's going to go for you? But what if your perspective is, I can't wait to get to the top and see the view? It's totally different. Your perspective will make or break your commitment to Christ. So Paul's saying to Timothy, first of all, do not be ashamed. And the implication here is that there are times in the Christian life where you are going to be tempted to find it awkward or even humiliating. Paul knew this. In fact, in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he said, what? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. Basically, he's saying no matter where you go, there are going to be people who are not going to be receptive to this gospel. So as you live the gospel, as you believe the gospel, as you tell the gospel, there are going to be moments, there's going to be instances where you will be tempted to be ashamed of it. 
Uh, John Stott writes, We are all more sensitive to public opinion than we'd like to admit and tend to bow down too readily before its pressure, like reeds shaken by the wind. I've been here before. I remember when I was in my college years, I was in the biology track, and there was a professor who I really looked up to. He was the professor, professor of parasitology, which was a great class. Um, maybe not all of us would find it great, but I thought it was very interesting. And I was in my senior year spending time with this professor and a couple of students in his laboratory. And while we were discussing, he looked across the table at me and he said, what are your future plans? What do you plan on doing next? And for whatever reason, as he said that in that room and in that setting, I felt a tinge of shame and I just kind of quickly blurted out, I don't know what I'm going to be doing next. And then I changed the conversation. But there was a big problem with that answer. I was lying. I knew exactly what I was going to be doing next. I had my application into Moody Bible Institute to be a pastor. You know why I said that? Because I knew how these biology professors felt about Christianity. And I was afraid that if if he knew I was going to be a pastor, he would start thinking differently of me. Here's the thing, church. Like Timothy needs crucial perspective, you and I need it, or else we might be tempted to be ashamed of the faith. Let me ask you some questions. How do you think of your faith? I have a lot of conversations with Christians. I've been here personally, and, and, and there's just these moments where we feel like, as Christians, ah, i got to soften the edges of this whole faith thing. I mean, there's these awkward moments in the Old Testament, and I don't want to have conversations with people about that. And, and we know that some of the moral stands that the Bible takes today, they're just running really contrary where popular opinion is running. And so we get into this place where we want to soften the edges. We want to kind of hedge ourselves a little bit away from those things. But Paul's saying, look... If you think of your faith in that way, you're going to set yourself up for failure. You may drop the baton. So instead of being ashamed of the faith, why not go deeper in the faith and be willing to suffer for the gospel? You know what I've come to realize? that most people will suffer for the things that they believe in, that they find valuable. They'll suffer. I think about the athlete. I, I love watching the strongman competitions, just the feats of strength that those guys accomplish. To me, it is incredible what the human body can do when it is pumped full of steroids. Now, Imagine a strong man writing an epistle to another strong man. He would say something along these lines, Do not be ashamed of the long hours, the rigid dieting, the commitment involved, and, of course, the wearing of singlets. Rather, be ready to suffer grueling training if you wish to be the best. You know, people, you, some of us suffer for our jobs. We lurk long hours. 
we're on call, we miss family events, there's a lot of pressure and stress and anxiety. Some of us have suffered the loss of great financial resources sending our kids off to college. Because we believe that if we set them up with a good education, that will put them on the right path. Many of us are suffering right now from isolation. Why? For the cause of protecting others within society. So my point is this. We will suffer for what we truly believe is valuable. What is core. And we will do that without shame. I never hear a strong man saying that they're ashamed of their practice regimen. So it's not so much, the question is not so much, will you suffer? The question is, what's worth suffering for? And I've got to tell you, if you can answer that question as a Christian, it will radically change your faith walk with Jesus. And Paul gives us the why in verses 9 and 10. Let's look at that. So look at verse 8, just that last part. And he said to Timothy, Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. If you ever find yourself in that place of feeling ashamed, or even questioning. Paul does this time and time again in the Gospels. He takes you back to the pure Gospel. Look at what Jesus did. Look at the person of Jesus. Now, sometimes we think to ourselves, yeah, but here's the thing. I've heard the Gospel message a million times. Haven't I heard it enough? And the answer to that question is always, no, you have not heard it enough. Okay, we're going to be singing the gospel, praising God for the gospel, and declaring stories that God did in our lives through the gospel for the eons and eons to come in eternity. We're never going to stop talking about it. It's always the solution. And so in verses 9 and 10, Paul takes Timothy back to the gospel, back to this framework, And he summarizes it with that clause, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. That's what God did in the gospel. Now let's look at the the second part of that, the purpose of the gospel, which is that God's saved you for a purpose, a holy calling. Now God's purpose for a saved life is to change that life and utilize that life for his glory. So he comes into your world. You might come to him as you are, but you do not leave as you are. That's the power of the gospel. It's the second part of our mission statement, transformation. So if you come to Jesus and say you're struggling with some form of an addiction and there's some form of this addiction controlling your life, the Holy Spirit is not content with something else controlling your life. He wants to control your life. Or if you come to Him and there's bitterness and hatred in your heart towards a person, He is not going to leave you in that state towards that person. He's going to do the miraculous work of forgiveness and even creating a sense of love for that person in your heart. 
If there's some way that you're stepping outside of his bounds morally, whether it's involving yourself in a relationship that you should not, the Holy Spirit is going to enter into your world and he's going to start working in your heart to move you to do what is pleasing to God. It's a holy calling. It involves my life changing to become more like Jesus and then giving me a glorious purpose with this transformed life to tell others about Jesus, to raise up more disciples. Now let's look at the salvation that Paul tells us about. You see, one thing that Paul tells us time and again as he talks about salvation is our salvation is not something that we did for ourselves. You see that in this, don't you? He said it's not by your works. In fact, he makes two crucial points about why we couldn't earn our own salvation. The first point he makes is that our salvation was determined by God in eternity past. Or you, you look at the phrase there, uh, the text says, before the ages began. Now think about that. There is this eternal counsel in eternity past with the triune God taking place, planning in the mind of God the glorious nature of grace and salvation. Were you a part of that conversation? No. All of those decisions were made then. And here's the thing. When you come to realize that about salvation, it is humbling. There's a reality where I'm saved holy because of what God did. But it's also an incredibly assurance-building piece of knowledge. Uh, John Stott says this. He says, That knowledge brings peace and assurance, for nothing can quiet our fears for our own stability like the knowledge that our safety depends ultimately not on ourselves, but on God's own purpose of grace. So if you've ever, Christian, been in that place where you were questioning your salvation because of something you did or something you've thought about, Paul takes you all the way back to eternity past and he says, look, all of that was planned out then. You know what? As you look at Scripture and as you look at how God is operating in grace, you have no idea how incredibly secure you are in Christ. Now let's look at the second aspect of this. Paul talks about Jesus being our mediator. So grace was determined in eternity past, and we have a mediator in Jesus. Now when you think of a mediator, you need to think of someone doing something for you that you could not do for yourself. Can you save yourself from death? No. Can you bring yourself to heaven? No. I need someone to do this for me. Our Thrive Study is a curriculum based on, or that, that's challenging us as parents to raise our kids in the Lord and, and to do this by teaching them the gospel at home. Now, as we're studying this out, of course, the, the curriculum's taking us into Scripture and we're looking at how the Bible tells parents, this is your responsibility. But it also equips us. It gives us some tools. And one of those tools involves object lessons. One of the object lessons that they've told us to do so far teaches us to show our children that Jesus is the mediator. Well, how do we show them this? Well, we stand as a parent at the top of the stairs 
say it's at home or another staircase. And as you talk to your children who are standing down at the bottom of the stairs, you say something like this, I want you to imagine that I am holy God dwelling in heaven. And I want you to come dwell in heaven with me. But there's a catch. In order to get to me, you may not use the stairs or touch them, use the railing or touch it, or, you know, like Spider-Man crawl up the walls. You can't do any of that. So come get to me. Now, you know how the kids are as they're looking at this problem. They start scratching their head. They're trying to figure out the math, kind of like how we try to figure out the math. We constantly think about how am I going to climb the stairs to get to God? And maybe if I just pray a little more or read my Bible a little more, maybe I'll just show up to church every Sunday or do a couple more good deeds. Then I can climb stair by stair and earn my way to God. But here's the deal. The scriptures say time and again, all of those things are worthless. They don't even get you onto the first stair of the staircase. So as the kids are working out the dilemma, then you give them gospel or good news. You say to them, what if instead of you trying to figure out how to get up those stairs, I come down to you, you jump on my back, and I carry you up the stairs? Now it turns into a pretty fun scenario because the kids know that they are getting a piggyback ride up the stairs and mommy and daddy know that they will be popping Advil later. Now here's the thing. That's a good picture of mediation. You can't climb the stairs. God knew that in eternity past, and in eternity past, He determined that He would send Jesus to live the life that you couldn't live, to die on the cross in your place for your sins, and to rise again to new life. In essence, Jesus climbed the stairs for us. But there's one contingent, and here it is. You have to climb on His back, Right? You can't get up those stairs and say, Jesus, you know, I appreciate all those things that you did. They were really valuable, but I think I'm going to try to ascend that staircase by myself. I have my own little religious system that I've created, and this is how I like connecting with God. So I'm going to just stick with that for now. There's a big problem there. There's only one who has the right to climb the staircase, and it is Jesus. So the biggest question you will ever answer in this life is, have you trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you let him come into your world and abolish death and to give you life and immortality? Don't try to do that on your own. Well, how do you do that? The Bible says you place your faith in him. Now that... Jesus carrying you up the staircase is a beautiful picture of what faith is. It's not just like, oh, that's a nice message and I think I kind of agree with it. No, you got to jump on his back. You have to trust him with your worldview. You have to stake your life on the reality that only Jesus can climb me up those stairs. So today, if you haven't put your faith in him, I challenge you to do so. And he will carry you fully and finally. Well, let's move forward. You see, Paul moves from perspective into where he's driving at, which is crucial perspective is meant to cause us to take up 
crucial responsibilities. Perspective is nice, but it has to result in us doing something with that perspective. Look at verses 11 to 13, and we're going to see that first responsibility that he commends to Timothy. He says, he's talking about the gospel, and in verse 11 he says, For this gospel I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Timothy, verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the first crucial responsibility is, verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words. Now that word pattern means model or example, or you could even think of it as a a prototype. And Paul sets out that pattern in verses 11 and 12. I've lived my life in this sort of way. Watch and learn, Timothy. This is how you're to live your life. Now, what I love about this is that Paul is not writing to Timothy from some kind of ivy tower. He's not just theorizing about the Bible and the gospel and, and, you know, parsing out Greek words and that kind of stuff and saying, this is what it's all about. No, no, he is giving him a model that was born out of his own blood, sweat, and tears. That's his calling. You see, there is power in personal model. The leadership baton is passed through strong personal model. Now this calling that Paul had, he summarized with three roles. He talked about being an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher. And if you're wondering, what does that mean? What are those three roles? Let me just kind of simply break it down. The apostle was responsible for formulating the gospel. They walked with Jesus or had some kind of personal encounter with Jesus. And so they were the ones who formulated the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, the preacher takes that message that the apostle formulated, and they deliver it. And then the teacher takes people in through instruction into the depths of the doctrine and the ethical implications of that gospel. So Paul said that he did all three, and that that was worth suffering for. Now, it's not the first time that he's told someone that he's suffered for the gospel. I love reading the letter of 2 Corinthians, and if you know the background of that situation, the church in Corinth was questioning Paul's authority and even poking or making hints at that Paul wasn't truly as committed as he claimed that he was. And you know what he does essentially in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians? He basically rips off his shirt and he says, count the scars on my body and we'll see who's committed to Christ. Listen to his commitment level in verses 24 to 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Do you think Paul was committed to the gospel? Of course he was. Timothy, he says, followed the pattern. If there was ever anything worth suffering for, if there was ever a message worthy of your life, the totality of your life, it is the message that Jesus has brought from death to us life. You know what I love about this? Paul is not preaching tenants at Timothy. He's preaching a person. He was confident because he had placed his faith in a living person who would never disappoint him. I want you to see that in verse 12. I know whom I have believed. Not what. Whom. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Listen, if your faith is just all about abstract theological tenets, you're not going to carry the baton well. You have to develop a life-giving relationship with the Savior. Well, how do you do that? Well, it involves daily connections, like how we build relationships with anyone. I open my Bible. I read it. I learn the heart of God. I let God tell me about myself. I pray to him. I get into small gatherings of Christians where we hold one another accountable. And in that experience, I learn how to love Jesus more, how to trust Jesus more, and ultimately that builds my confidence in Jesus because I know whom I have believed. Now let's look at the second crucial responsibility in the last one. He says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you in verse 14. Now, guarding the deposit means protecting and maintaining the purity of the gospel. Because there's always going to be those who wish to warp and twist the gospel. Just think about how easily the gospel can be twisted. Uh, The pure gospel says something like, Jesus is the only way. A false gospel says Jesus is one of the ways. The pure gospel says you can only find forgiveness by trusting Christ as Savior and Lord. A false gospel said that God loves everyone and will accept anyone on their own terms. The pure gospel says that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the mediator between God and man. The false gospel says Jesus was a good moral example and he never claimed to be God. The pure gospel says that I can do nothing to earn my own salvation. A false gospel says you need to add to the work of Christ so that you can be sure that you will be saved. Now, do you see how easy it is to twist that gospel? And you've got to get the gospel just right. 
Let me make an analogy here that might help you to see that. Let's move out of the realm of this moral or this this philosophy that we're learning from scripture and let's consider travel for a moment. What happens if you're traveling to a destination and you are off by one degree? Just one. Well, say we go 100 yards. You won't be off by much, about 5.2 feet. Now let's move that out to a mile. When you travel a mile and you're off by one degree, you will be off by 92.5 feet. Now we're going to travel across the United States of America from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. One degree off and you find yourself in Baltimore and not Washington, D.C. Let's jump into a spaceship and head to the moon. You head to the moon, you're one degree off. You miss the moon by 4,200 miles, which is twice the diameter of the moon. Now we're going to go over to the sun. You travel to the sun. You miss the sun by 1.6 million miles. You see, even a slight degree can mean all the difference in the world. Now let's move back into the Bataan Pass. We're off, we're slightly twisting the gospel. We communicate that twist to our child. Our child never receives the transformation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. They grow up and they say, I want nothing to do with Jesus. A pastor is off by degrees as they're communicating the word of God to a church family. And they give that church family hundreds of good moral messages over the years, but never the transformative message of the gospel. A denomination adopts that as a philosophy of ministry. And now you have hundreds of churches across the world doing lots of religious things, but again, never introducing people to the life-giving relationship with the Savior. Now you think to yourself, well, that's a lot of responsibility. I mean, isn't it easy to miss the moon by a degree? Of course it is. Very easy. In fact, if you jump in a spaceship right now and head to the moon and just say, I'm just going to get there by looking at the moon from the spaceship, you're going to be off by more than one degree. You're going to miss it greatly. That's why in every single spaceship, they build an internal navigation system. We need that. And Paul says that in order for us to guard the deposit, we need the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. You see, the third person of the Trinity is the one who will keep you focused on the gospel and faithful to the gospel. We need his internal navigation daily. And the second that we get away from that eternal navigation, we will get frighteningly off course. Here's the deal. I just spoke this Friday. I, I published a, a fireside chat talking about the legacy of Ravi Zacharias. Now, I, I first became aware of the allegations when Christianity Today had published an article back in September, and I just got to tell you, my heart sunk because they looked credible. And as they went into the investigation, of course, we were given revelations that indeed there was a serious breach of trust a horrible pattern of abuse that women suffered, and of course the reproach that it brought on Christ. 
Now, I want to say this first as you think about that situation. It's important that we say something about it. It was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, I also want us to not just get stuck there of calling it out because we need to look it right in the eyes and feel sobered by it. Just this last week, I had one of my closest friends texted me. He was a young guy that I mentored back here at church, and we've just stayed in touch over the years. And and what he said to me in the text is he said, I'm looking at this, and that's led me to pray for your ministry. I'm praying for God's protection over you. I'm praying that you will lead a life that results in a positive legacy. And i got to tell you, I'm just so thankful that he did that. And I'd ask you to pray for me in that same way. And I'm going to pray for you in that way. What I said to him in my text in response is I said, every Christian man could make that same horrible decision. The Holy Spirit of God is our only saving grace to live a life that is pleasing to Christ. You see, church, the moment that you look at Ravi Zacharias and you think to yourself, I would never do such a thing is the moment you are in most danger, according to the Scriptures. Our prayer life needs to be like this. Holy Spirit, I desperately need you. I need you to work in my life. I need you to expose me to the things that I don't want to see about myself. I need you to put Christian friends and, and, and people who want something for me in my life who are going to say things to me even when I don't want to hear them. I need to have a complete lack of trust in myself so much so that I say to myself, I don't trust me as far as you can throw me. I need you, Holy Spirit. Listen, the Scriptures are clear. Some will keep crucial perspective. Others will lose it. Some will allow the Spirit to lead so that they can fulfill those crucial responsibilities that Christ has given us, and others will drop the baton. Today, when you go home, I want you to look at the next few verses, verses 15 through 18, and just kind of meditate on the two outcomes that you'll see there. Let me summarize it for you. First, Paul gives an example of two guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes. And these two individuals drop the baton. And then he gives the example of another man, Onesephorus. He carries the baton. And what's the difference? It always goes back to the same answer, the Holy Spirit of God. As you look at that story today, ask yourself the question, will I carry the baton or will I drop it? Will I hold on to perspective or will I lose it? As we summarize or close this sermon, I want you to hear these words from this author. He says, what Paul was doing here by letter was extending his apostolic hand out of his Roman prison, across the boot of Italy, across the Adriatic Sea, across Greece, across the Aegean to Ephesus, and he was beckoning Timothy to join him in standing unashamed while suffering for Christ. His hand still reaches out through the centuries to Christ's followers today. Church, Paul's hand is extended to you. Will you 
join him in suffering for Christ and standing unashamed for Christ, despite many of the things that are bombarding us today, those awkward moments, whether it's a family party or the fear of reputation, a loss of reputation that you might have at work, whether it's this oddball sensation that today I just don't seem to fit in with some of the moral standards of the day, are you willing to undergo that to be unashamed as you walk with Christ? And if you want to hold to that, you have to connect with him daily. You have to give him access to your heart and you have to get to know his heart so that you too will say, I know whom, whom I have believed. Well, let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit for his help. Holy Spirit, as we close our time this morning, I just pray for your leadership in our lives, your guidance, your direction. I love how Jesus first spoke of you to his disciples. He called you the helper, the comforter. You're the one who comes alongside and empowers the Christian for the life that is worthy of the calling that we've been given. I prayed this morning that there, if there is anyone who, who does not know Christ yet as their Savior, that right now they would grant Christ access to their heart, that they would believe upon him and be saved. Your word is just so clear. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. I thank you for this Holy Spirit, for this message, and I just pray that we would be faithful to the calling you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen.